Open up the Bible to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3. All right, so we are into our third mystery of the seven mysteries, and we're going to be talking about being part of the body of Christ and the mystery of the church. And um, and this is one that hopefully by the time we're done, there's going to be some doctrinal things that will be able to help you understand the rest of Scripture a little bit. Um, So I want to try to make sure you guys understand that. Um, and so if there's any confusion about that, please feel free to interrupt and ask questions uh, so we can make sure that everybody's all on the same page with that one. But this is what we're talking about, the mystery of the church. The last mystery that we talked about was the mystery of Christ in you. And that at the moment of salvation, the spirit of Christ literally moves inside of you. Uh, and so that God is with you all the time in everything that you say, everything you think, everything that you do. He is with you permanently. And uh, there's some great, great devotional applications with that one on how we ought to live and really should make an impact on our decisions. And so we're going to be talking this week about the flip side of that, which is kind of two sides of the same coin, the mystery of the church. So now that Christ is in you from the moment that you are saved and you receive Christ as your Savior and Christ is now in you, now you become part of the body of Christ. So the moment that the Spirit of Christ moves inside of you at that moment of salvation, you are now in the body of Christ. We're going to talk about what that means and even some of the practical applications of all that. All right, so our verse for this one is Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 3 through 6. All right, here we go. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. So these verses here really describe this whole thing of the body of Christ. No one knew about the body of Christ, and that's our first point. The church was completely hidden, completely hidden until the Spirit revealed it. The church was completely hidden until the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost revealed it, and revealed it specifically unto Paul, and then Paul is revealing it unto us. Now, this is something very, very important, because I would say, for the most part, I mean, I grew up this way at church, but there are many Christians today that basically believe that the church just, like, always existed. That the same way that people are saved today is the same way that, like, Abraham was saved, or the same way that David was saved, was the same way that Adam and Eve were saved, that it all is the exact same thing. And that is not true. That is absolutely not true. No one knew anything about the church. If you were to show up in the garden right after Adam and Eve fell, or even beforehand, and you ask them, hey, do you know anything about the body of Christ? Isn't it great to be part of the body of Christ? They would look at you and go, what? I mean, like a new puppy dog here in a new sound. I love it when they do that. It's so cute. Anyway, they would look at you and be like, are you crazy? What are you, what are you talking about? And who is Christ? Like, we don't, we don't understand that. They, they would not comprehend that. If you were to show up around Abraham's time and ask him the same thing, David, Solomon, they would do the exact same thing. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, same thing. They were like, what are you talking about? With the 12 disciples walking with Jesus, they'll say, well, we know Christ, but being a part of his body? What are you talking about? They, have, they had no idea. Even into the book of Acts, when you hit Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, they had no idea what you'd be talking about if you said, hey, isn't it awesome to be part of the body of Christ? Because no one knew about it until the Spirit of God revealed it. Now, 
believers in Acts 2 through 6, like we just gave in that example, if they trusted in the gospel according to what Peter preached, were they saved and were they born again? Yes, they were. Because it's Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit of God came and permanently began to reside in the believers in Acts chapter 2. That's what makes a person born again. So when we use the term born again, or hey, are you born again? What that means is that you know that you're a sinner, you need a savior, you've prayed and you've trusted Christ and you pray to God saying, I need you to save me. And the spirit of God moves in and permanently resides inside of your mortal body. Prior to that, that never happened. So with David, he did not have the permanency of the spirit of God inside of him. In Psalm 51, when he sinned and fell into sin with Bathsheba and he killed Uriah and all that stuff, he asked God, remove not thy Holy Spirit from me. And you can see with Saul and others that the Spirit of God came upon people for a certain period of time and sometimes it left. So there wasn't a permanence to the Spirit of God in the Old Testament, not until Acts chapter 2. So when we say born again, that means that the Spirit of God is inside of you permanently and he will never go away. That's what it means to be born again, to be that 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's what we're talking about. So this thing was completely and totally hidden until the Spirit of God revealed it. So let's take a look at a couple different passages on this one because these would these be good passages. Um, let's divide and conquer. So we've got Ephesians 3, 9. We're already there, so hold your spot there. Uh, someone look up Romans 16, 25. Okay, someone else look up 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Okay, you got that one. Uh, someone else do Isaiah 49, 6. Got that one. Daniel 9, 24 through 27. You got that one. Actually, you know what? We're going to turn there. Go ahead and take Acts 1, 6 through 9. All right, so the church was completely hidden. Let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 3. And someone read verse 9. Who wants that one? Read verse 9. You already got one. We'll get somebody else. Reese, go ahead. <coughs> Let's make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which is from which from the beginning of the wor- world hath seen, or, sorry, hath been hid in God, who created all things by Christ Jesus. Okay, so this verse says this fellowship of the mystery, and it says which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God. So this was something in the heart and the mind of God from the very very beginning, but He just chose not to talk to anybody about it. Like the Trinity knew about it. But as far as anybody else, no one else knew about it. And we'll talk about why in a minute uh, when we get to point number three. But it says right there that it has been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. Now go ahead and turn to Daniel 9. And as we're turning to Daniel 9, then you can hear some of these other verses. All right, so 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Speak loud and everyone listen intently. Okay, so these verses are amazing. So first of all, it says that Old Testament prophets, they wrote some things that they're like, now why are we writing about this? And they didn't quite really understand, but God told them to write it, so they wrote it down. And they were diligent. They were like, man, I want to understand this. A great example is Daniel. There are times in Daniel's life 
um, that he wrote something down and he really wanted to understand it. And God said, nope, it's not for you to understand. So God, you're telling me that I need to write this down and I have no idea what I'm writing, but I'm not supposed to understand it. Yes, exactly. Okay. I mean, how's Daniel going to fight against God? And how many times does that happen in your life? Something unfolds that you just don't understand, but God's just wanting you to trust him. You know, I had a great reminder of that yesterday. So last Sunday, you guys heard Pastor Tom talk about that four-month-old that passed away, right? So Megan and I went to the funeral yesterday. That was so hard. To walk through the line and then to go to the dad and the mom, I literally had no idea what to say. Like, I shook the dad's hand, and I said, I have no words. Like, I I don't know what to say, but God knows, and he's able to comfort you. And I gave him a hug. I didn't even know what to say to the mom. And I gave her a hug, and then I sat down. And it's one of those things where I'm like, I don't understand. I don't understand why things happen that way. But I do know God. And I know that he is able to do anything and everything. And there is a reason behind everything that even when I don't understand it, I have to be okay with it. Not in a forced way, but because I know him. And I know his character. And I know who he is. And I know how he operates. So that way it makes me trust him when there's things that unfold that I don't understand. And so it requires great faith because we know who God is. And so Daniel had to do something very similar in a different context where God's like, yeah, write it down, but you're not going to be able to understand it. So we've got that one. So you have Old Testament prophets wrote some of these things that they were foretelling of stuff that we now understand and that we can know. And then he goes even as far as the end of that verse that Emily just read, that the angels desire to look into these things. Like the angels are like, are you kidding me? Like this whole thing about a person becoming born again and being in the body of Christ, like that is amazing. They don't even really understand it. And they stand in awe of it and they want to look into it. So what you have the ability to have through Christ with God now is something that the Old Testament prophets were like, I want to understand that, but I don't get it. And the angels are looking at you and say, I want to understand that. That should tell you that you have something pretty valuable, pretty amazing that God did for you. I think a lot of us take advantage of the, uh, the blessings that we have through Christ and what we have being in the body of Christ way too much. We don't really understand what we have and the blessing that you really do have. And one day we will understand it completely, but why wait until then? Why not look at it now and understand it and really appreciate it? All right, listen to Isaiah 49.6. He said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserves of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Okay, so this is one of those passages that Isaiah wrote where he didn't quite early understand. But also, the nation of Israel is supposed to be a light unto the Gentiles. Now, in that context, it's talking about Jesus, the Messiah, that he is supposed to raise up the nation of Israel and redeem them, but he's also supposed to be the light unto the Gentiles. And see, this was something that the, that the Jews really did not quite understand at all. But here's an example in Daniel chapter 9 that I want you to see as well, um, that there's, there's this thing where you, you start to see that he's talking about the nation of Israel, and you know the church is in between a couple different verses, but it just like seems like it doesn't even exist. So in Daniel chapter 9, 
verses 24 through 27, what you have is called the prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks. Now, this one is a huge prophecy. So if you want to understand the Old Testament, you want to understand like the last days and how things all work together, this one is a big one because it talks about from the moment that they went into captivity, then there was this 70-year period that they were going to be in captivity. And then after that 70-year period was over, now you have them going back into their homeland and God begins this clock that, that starts. And this clock is going to usher in the Messiah and then the end of days. And so from the nation of Israel's perspective, when God gave this unto Daniel, this gave them a timeline that after captivity was over, we can expect the Messiah to show up at this time. And that's what they were waiting for. The entire Old Testament was pointing towards the Messiah, and that's what the Jewish people were waiting for. Now, we know that they rejected him, and so things are not going to be finished until you have the future tribulation period. But this is something that the Jews did not see and they did not understand. So look at verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So basically to finish everything that the Bible has spoken about thus far. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Okay, so we're going to stop there for a second. So he basically lays out in verse 25, and he says, From the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah shall be how many weeks? What is seven weeks and three score and two weeks? 69 weeks. All right. Did you get all that? Okay. What's the score? 20. A score is 20. All right. So you have seven weeks. So there's seven plus three score, which is how many? 60 and two. So two plus 60 plus seven is 69. All right. I know you probably didn't think you were going to do math today at church. So just, you know, get over it. We just did it. Okay. So 69 weeks. So he says there's 70 weeks, but then he lays this out. There's 69 weeks that are going to be at this point in time. So from that commandment, God bless you twice. From that commandment to restore, to build Jerusalem and restore it, unto the Messiah shall be 69 weeks. Now, when you study the term weeks in the Bible, you find out that those are periods of seven years. So you have 69 periods of seven years. Whew. Anyone else want to do that math? I mean, I have it written in my margin, but I just want to know if you want to know. 469. Are we sure? <laughs> Is this just because you don't want to do the math? You're not sure? 483. 483. So 483 years, which would work out to be 173,880 days, in case you're wondering. So 483 years would be that period of time until the Messiah shows up and then you have him being the redeemer of Israel. And that's what they were waiting for. Okay. And so this is also how that the wise men that came from the East knew when the Messiah was going to show up, by the way, because Daniel shared this prophecy with those guys. And so those are the wise men that came to see the birth of Christ because they knew the Messiah was going to show up. All right. So they knew around the rough time frame. 
But when you measure this out, it actually works out incredible. Down to the very day, down to the very day, when Jesus came in on that colt, and everyone said, blessed is he that come in the name of the Lord. And they're yelling, Hosanna. It works down to the exact day, the exact day from when they were released from captivity to go and restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the day that he ushers in where the people wanted to receive him as their Messiah. It was exactly 173,880 days. Exactly. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. But then what happened after that? What did Israel do? They rejected him and they crucified him. And so things changed. And so that's why verse 26 says, and after three score and two weeks, referencing that 69 weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. See, they even talked about his death. He's going to be cut off, but not for himself. And then it continues and talks about other things that are going to unfold. And then you have verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. So that would be that last week of the seven-week prophecy. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, this now begins something brand new because they rejected the Messiah after the 69th week. And now you have this last week where the Antichrist is going to show up, have a false peace treaty with the nation of Israel. And it says in the midst of that last week, which is three and a half years which we just covered this in JBI over the past couple weeks. But in that midst of, that, of the tribulation, you have him basically just making void that covenant. And now you have uh, the, everything else that unfolds before God just completely reconciles everything and, and destroys the Antichrist and sets up his kingdom. So this prophecy is massively huge. But here's the deal. Where's the church? If you were to put the church... In Daniel chapter 9, because we know it exists, where would you put it? Yep, so what verses? Where would you put the church? Between 26 and 27. So if you can see, if you, if you squint really hard and you look down in between, you can see the church. No, you really can't. But it's there. It's there. It's right there in between 26 and 27. But this gives you an example of what I was just talking about. That God hid the church until he was ready to reveal it. God does stuff like this in the Bible. This is why you have to be careful how to read your Bible, how to study your Bible. Because there are times where between two verses, there are spans of a couple thousand years. So you've got to know how to take it in context. People that rest the scriptures or twist the scriptures and believe false doctrine... They can't see stuff like this. When God said, duh, I hid it. I hid it until I was ready to reveal it. And so those of us that believe what the Bible says, we're like, oh, that makes sense. It's not that we're smarter. It's that we've read the Bible and we believe what God has said. And so because we believe what God said in Ephesians, we can go back in Daniel and say, there's the church. Where? Ephesians, but Daniel, there's the church. You see what I'm talking about? There's a lot of people that get this stuff completely off. All right. Now listen to Acts 1, 6 through 9. Go ahead and read that one, Tyler. All right. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. 
ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and, and all in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Okay. So the apostles, this is after the resurrection of Christ. And now they're like, all right, Jesus. So are you going to restore the kingdom now? I mean, that's the next thing on their calendar. They've read the Old Testament. They believe the Old Testament. They don't have anything in the New Testament yet. But they're like, all right, now, Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom? We have been waiting for this. Your Bible speaks about this. Is it now? Because they are pumped. And then Jesus goes and bursts their bubble. And he says, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. And then he goes, like, wait a minute. Where are you going? You're supposed to restore the kingdom. He's like, no, it's not for you to know. But you're going to be witnesses and you go to Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Father. What? 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 I mean, they would have been massively confused. Massively confused because they didn't know about the church. Okay, so is that clear? Okay, I want to make sure that's clear. Now, there's one picture I wanted to show you. This is Clarence Larkin. He's got some great resources. But here you have an example of you have Old Testament prophets, that dude in the garb on the left. So when they would write different prophecies, they saw the birth of Jesus. They even saw the crucifixion of Jesus, where you have the three crosses, Calvary. They even saw when the Spirit of God would be coming down and dwelling in the midst of people. So there are prophecies that talk about that. But yet they didn't see anything in the valley of the church. But they also saw the Antichrist, and they also saw the second coming, and they also saw the kingdom. But they didn't see that millennium, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And then they would see the new heaven and new earth, but they didn't see what happened in the eternity future. So these are called the mountain peaks of prophecy. That from that perspective, when they would write things down, they were faithful to write whatever God wanted them to write. But they couldn't see how all of that was going to unfold. We have the advantage now, because we have the written word of God that is completed, that we can step back and look at this side view and say, oh, yeah. I can see how when Jeremiah, when Isaiah, when they were writing and speaking about these things, that they could have prophecies that spoke of both the first and second coming of Christ and yet mentioned nothing about the church because it was completely hidden. So these are some of the reasons why you've got to know your Bible. And it's very important that you begin reading your Bible and getting into it because you'll be able to learn things like this as you go. All right. So this one's really critical. I want to make sure you guys get this one. So are there any questions on this? Does this make sense? Any questions at all? Okay. All right. Okay. So now along with this one, we've got our next point. So that the Jews and Gentiles are now one in Christ. Go back to Ephesians. Go back to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Okay. Ephesians chapter 3. All right. Take a look at verses 6 through 8. All right, we already read verse 6, but we're going to keep going. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise by Christ, or promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make all men see 
What is the fellowship of this mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ? So he's speaking specifically unto Gentiles. Now, to give you a little bit more of an idea about this, back it up to chapter 2 and take a look at verse 11. So he's speaking to Gentiles, and he says, by the way, who's a Gentile? Everyone who is not a Jew. Okay, all right, very good. So Gentiles, anyone that's not a Jew, verse 11, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision. And who's the circumcision? The Jews in the flesh made by hands. That at that time ye were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain two, one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both Jew and Gentile unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And then he continues on from there, all right? So the whole point here is that prior to the cross, Gentiles had nothing to do with Jews. Salvation belonged to the Jews. And if you were a Gentile that wanted to be saved in the Old Testament, what did you have to do? Come proselyte, which means convert to Judaism. You had to leave your Gentile pagan religions and you had to get circumcised if you were a male and you had to become a Jew. And if you were a proselyte and you became a Jew, then God looked at you and you were a Jew. But in order to be saved from approximately, you know, we'll just, we'll just say the Exodus. So basically from the Exodus outside of Egypt all the way up until Jesus Christ, if you wanted to be saved, you had to become a Jew because the promises were to the Jews. The gifts and everything were to the Jews. The prophecies were to the Jews about the Messiah. And there are many people that did that. Think about Ruth. What did Ruth do? She left her old land, her old life, her old families, and she joined herself unto the nation of Israel, and she became a Jew. That's what she had to do. And it's no different. Think about it in this term. I mean, it's different, but in principle, it's no different. If a Jew wants to be saved today, what do they have to do? They have to become born again. They have to leave Judaism and all the things that they held dear, according to the Old Testament, and become a born-again believer. Just like Gentiles have to leave their old ways of thinking and their old religion of even worshiping self to become born again. It's the exact same thing. Just a little bit different. Same in principle. So I wanted to show you this picture because here, this would be like the temple, all right? And then you have this wall that's right here with all these little people over here, okay? This is what was called the court of the Gentiles. As a Gentile, if you wanted to come into the area where you had the temple in Jerusalem and you wanted to participate in the Jewish stuff, you could only go this far. You were not allowed to go over here. If you went over here, you were killed. You were put to death according to the Jewish law. You were not allowed to go past that wall. This is called the court of the Gentiles. And the purpose of the court of the Gentiles is for them to observe the religion of the Jews, the worship of the God of Israel, so that way they could be convicted in their heart and say, I want to become a Jew. 
because I want that God to be my God. That was the whole purpose. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 14 again. For he is our peace, Jesus, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. That wall. He's giving you a picture. That wall, Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, broke down that wall, and now two can become one. The Jew is no longer a Jew. The Gentile is no longer a Gentile. Now that wall broken down, they both can now be one in the body, in the body of Christ, by being born again. Are we good on that? Okay, because there's a lot of people that aren't. This is a big deal that God was doing here. This is huge. This is why Peter didn't quite understand it. Remember when Pastor Tom a few weeks ago in, in the book of Acts when he was preaching and you had the whole issue with Cornelius where he's like, I'm, I'm not, rise, Peter, kill and eat. I'm not going to eat anything that's unclean. And he says, what God has cleansed, what God hath cleansed, don't call it unclean. That whole thing, God was trying to teach Peter, Peter, I'm doing something different now. Because of what Christ has done, that which is uncommon, that which is unclean, is now made clean because of what I've done upon the cross. And Peter's like, okay, God, I don't quite understand it, but I'll be obedient. And then Cornelius and all his house, the first Gentiles to ever get saved, were now born again in Acts chapter 10. Something completely brand new. And this is also another reason why the Jews hate Christianity. There's many reasons, but this is a big one. Doctrinally speaking, the Jews hate what we believe because we're saying that you guys need to leave your Judaism and become a Christian. That's hard. That's hard. And it's just as hard for people that might be in other religions to forsake those things in order to believe what the Bible actually says. So the Jews and Gentiles are now one in Christ. When a person gets saved, they're no longer a Jew. They're no longer a Gentile. They are now born again in the body of Christ. So even though we say we're Gentiles, we're really not. I mean, we're Gentiles in the flesh. But if you've received Christ as your Savior, you are not a Gentile. You're not a Gentile. You are a brand new creature, born again into the body of Christ. That's kind of cool. And when a Jew gets saved, same thing. Same thing. All right. We good? Okay. All right. Let's keep going then. Now, why did God do it this way? Why did God do it this way? All right, back to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Okay, verses 9 through 21. All right, so why did God do it like this? Why did he hide it? Why did he create this new thing? Why did he do it? Verse 9. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent, so this is the reason, that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. All right, let's just stop there. God did this, according to verse 10, because he wants to show you off. I mean, show you off. This is what he wants to do. And the best picture I could find on that one is that one. Anyone see the underdog cartoon from like way back in the day? Oh, man, it's a classic. Like Rocky and Bullwinkle and Underdog. and All right, anyway, they made a movie back in the 90s that was pretty corny and it never went anywhere. Okay, so anyway, the Underdog. Okay, so the way that God designed this whole thing, and it's quite fascinating, he hid this thing completely and totally because through the church, you are on display to the seen and unseen world. So realize today that the fallen angels, the devils, those still exist, 
even though we don't quite see them operate in the same way, and I believe there's a reason for that. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see people being possessed, and you see all these things unfold. There's been times where I've wondered, like, why don't we see that kind of stuff today within the American culture? Well, I think part of the reason is because we're not a very superstitious culture. Because if you were to go into places like the Philippines, or you go to the, the Dominican Republic, or you go to Central America, there are some whacked out crazy things that happen very similar to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I mean psycho things where you're like okay that is clearly demon possession those things don't happen today because satan is really good at what he does he's very subtle and if he were to be that open with us then it would freak people out and they would run to the bible so anyway the seen and unseen world it is as real today as it always has been and when you become born again into the body of christ god puts you up on display for the seen and unseen world to to just behold look what god has done that is absolutely amazing When you become born again and you receive Christ as your savior, God uses you and puts almost like right in the face of the devil and say, see what I just did. See exactly what I just did. This is why your obedience and your faithfulness to God goes way beyond, way beyond, way, way, way beyond anything that you've ever imagined. Like the reason why we come to church, the reason why you read your Bible, the reason why you should be praying is not because of what you normally think it is for. It's because God is using you to boast in the face of the devil about, look what I've done. So when you obey, you go right in line and you cooperate with God in him boasting about what he's done and right in the face of the devil. And see, we don't think about that. There are weeks, like past couple weeks in my life, I don't think about that. And then I end up being very selfish and self-centered and I choose to do things my way and it gets me in trouble. But when I read passages like this and what a great reminder for me this past week to go through this stuff, I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? The reason why I get in my Bible, the reason why I want to have conversations with people, the reason why I want to be faithful in all the things that God's called me to is because God wants to use me to boast and to rub in the face of the devil of look what I've done because that's exactly what he did. We don't have time to look at these other verses, but let me just paint a picture for you, all right? So, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. If you haven't, maybe this is the first time, and this would be great for you to chew on for a bit. One of the big things that we talked about in JBI is this. Okay, did the devil want to kill Jesus? Yes. Because in killing the Messiah, what would the devil accomplish? Make God a liar by what? Okay, the, the prophecies are not true. What, which prophecies? Because think about it. What did Jesus come to do? He came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to restore the kingdom. He came to give Israel their nation and to be their king and their Messiah. And if we kill the king, how can they have a king over their kingdom, right? Okay, so the devil did everything that he could to turn the religious leaders against Jesus and to have the whole nation reject him as their Messiah and as their king. Correct? Okay. Now, did the devil know that in killing Jesus would actually usher in the kingdoms? No. If the devil knew that killing Jesus would actually make possible a way for the kingdoms to exist, then why would he do it? Why would he do it? Right? It makes zero sense. Why would the devil help God accomplish God's plan? I mean, am I, am I wrong here? 
No, this is why God kept the church hidden. He kept it hidden for, I mean, thousands of years because he knew that the devil is going to come against him and want to crucify him. And in the very thing where the devil's like, yes, I got him, God turned around and says, mm, no, I have you. That is stinking amazing. Like, have you ever seen a movie where it's like, oh, man, oh, oh, and then all of a sudden it turns and it's like, yes! You know what I mean? I love those movies, the underdog movies. Like, I remember growing up and I watched Rocky, all right? And, like, Rocky, if you've never seen Rocky, oh, my word, it is, like, amazing, all right? And I remember when he's going up against the Russian, which the Russian was, like, I mean, a big dude, very strong, and, I mean, he is... Boom, boom, taking him out. But then all of a sudden, at the last moment, he comes in and just wrecks him. And I'm like, yes! I love movies like that. You know why we like movies like that? Because of the Bible. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of the Bible. Just at the moment where the devil's like, I've got him. God's like, mm, wrong. Bam, I got you. Now what? I mean... And that's why a lot of you guys, especially those of you that play euchre or other games and you're highly competitive, that you like you're holding, you're holding, you're holding, you're like, boom, and you're like, I win. See, all this stuff goes back to what the Bible has already talked about. And so just to show you this, this is this is absolutely amazing. We will look at one verse. Go to Colossians chapter two. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So just two books over to your right. Colossians chapter two. This is exactly what God did. This is exactly what God did. Colossians 2. All right, verse 13. And you, being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, talking about that moment of salvation, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And here's the verse. And having spoiled principalities and powers... He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. That's the verse. That's the verse where verse 15 tells you exactly why God did this, that he spoiled principalities, that he gave them a nice swift undercut that knocked them completely out and he took the win. That's exactly what he did. And he triumphed, he, he was triumphing over them in it, in it, in that same act. In the thing that the devil thought, I've got him. God's like, nope, I've got you. Game, set, match. It's just absolutely amazing. I love how God does that. Absolutely amazing. And so as far as a, a great uh, reality to this one, and just giving you an idea of how this all works out, go to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And then we'll end with this verse. Revelation chapter 1. So when God took the win and he spoiled principalities, that means that he stole back something that rightfully belonged to his. Revelation chapter 1, take a look at these verses. Verse 17 and 18. So John sees Jesus and in verse 17 he says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Verse 18. I am he that liveth, and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. 
See, prior to the cross, the keys of hell and of death, the devil had them. They belonged to Satan. They were in his hand. They were in his power. And so here, when he took the win and he spoiled principalities, he did many things. But one of the things that he did was he went down. This is one of the reasons why Jesus had to go down into the center of the earth. Jesus did not go to hell, but he went down to the center of the earth. Because according to Luke chapter 16, you have the center of the earth that exists. And you have hell on one side and you have Abraham's bosom on the other side. And there's a great gulf that's fixed in between. You have the bottomless pit. And so when he went down, he busted through the gates of hell because that's, there's gates that open up into that compartment. And he took away the keys of hell and death from the devil and rightfully took the Old Testament saints from Abraham's bosom and escorted them up into heaven. And so now he holds those keys. And he has the right to open and close and do whatever he wants with it because now he is the owner of it. So when he did that, that's one practical application of how things unfolded where he spoiled principalities and powers. So I want you to think about this from a practical level. Practically, when it comes to this, you being God's glory on display, practically it happens through your local church. The way you participate in the body of Christ is a way for God to receive glory and put it on display for everyone to see. So we've got to ask some good questions. Now we've got a picture there, and you can look at that later, of the marriage relationship and how that really echoes the same picture of Christ in the church. You can read that later. But I want to close out by focusing on these two questions. If you really want God to use your life as a display for his glory in the face of the enemy, then you have to answer these two questions honestly. First one is, are you in the body of Christ? Is Christ in you? Have you made that choice, that moment where you knew that you needed a Savior and that Christ was the only way and that you have no hope outside of him and you've obeyed Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you made that choice? And you know that confidently. Because you can't be used of God to be glorified in the face of the enemy unless you're in the body. It's not possible. Based on what we just read in Ephesians and in Colossians, it's not possible. You have to be in the body. So are you in the body? And then secondly, is the body of Christ a top priority in your life? Because I would say that for a lot of people in our culture today, and even a lot of people in our church, the body of Christ is not a top priority. It's not. And so I wanted to give you some uh, scenarios just to think about. So how do you know if the body of Christ is a top priority? Well, first one there. I work hard to get and stay connected with other born-again believers at FBCJ during the week. And I'm not talking about surface-level casual connections. I'm talking about deeper relational connections. If you do not work hard to get them and to keep them, then your priority is not the body of Christ. Your priority is your own life and what you have going on. That's way more important than what God has told you to do. And you can't be used of God to glorify him in the face of the enemy if you're not connected to the church. Number two, I highly prioritize my church attendance and work hard to be involved in church services and events. Now, again, it's not about that. Remember, it's not about that. Well, I got to go to church because I'm going to be a good Christian. No, that's not what it's about at all, at all. We're talking about the glory of God. And if you are going to be used by God for his glory in the face of the enemy, then church has to be a top priority. It's not just something good Christians do. I want to make sure you understand that. It has got to be a top priority. People that do not make church a top priority and they don't make it a priority to be involved and stay involved and to come to events and all that, God can't use them. He wants to, but he can't. 
Because he designed the body of Christ for this purpose, to glorify God. And you cannot effectively glorify God on your own disconnected from the body. You can be obedient and you can glorify God as an individual, but you glorify God on a level that is unstinking believable when you're connected with each other and you're connected to the church. And then thirdly, and this one might be a big tell of where you're at. When I am out of fellowship with people, services, events at FBCJ, I feel like something important is missing in my life. If you don't feel like something is missing and you're not connected, then it's not a top priority. And so you need to be honest because if it isn't a top priority, then are you even in it? Because the spirit of God inside of you longs to be connected to the body, to each other. He longs, so he will be convicting you about not being here and not being connected. And so is he there? Because if he's there, he will be convicting you about it. You need to think about this. These are things that, these are judgments I cannot make. These are judgments only the Spirit of God can make as he works with you. So where are you at? Can you confidently answer yes to both of them? I hope you can. Maybe it's something that you need to think about. And even coming out of winter camp, I know there's a bunch of you that say, hey, I really need to be discipled. We're working on that. Hopefully we'll have that done within the next couple weeks because that's a huge, huge part about being connected and how to stay connected to the body. So I hope this was beneficial to you. There's a lot of doctrine that we talked about today, a good understanding of the scriptures, but there's a good practical level to this that we need to really understand because being obedient is so much more than what we generally think. All right, somebody close us in prayer. Let's have a lady. Any ladies want to pray? Thank you. Go ahead. Amen.